This morning's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter five, verses one through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for, the people, for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he, also, and he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to everyone here um, with us uh, this morning at Winter Park High School. And for those visiting with us online, we're really glad you're here this morning. Um, this morning, we come to a text dealing with priests and the priesthood. And um, today, few in our Presbyterian circles have much uh, experience or knowledge dealing with priests, but partly because of when and where I grew up, I have a little bit more than most. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a small town in Wisconsin. It was a time when everyone on Sundays paid homage to St. Vincent, St. Vincent Lombardi, the patron saint of the Green Bay Packers. Back then, it's fair to say that my dad was a lukewarm Catholic, but he understood his responsibility to raise his children in the faith. So at 10 years old, I attended a course uh, of instruction to join St. John Vianney Catholic Church, a course that was taught by a priest. And I remember very little of that course, but one of the things I do remember was my first confession. It was scary. I entered a darkened confession booth and I kneeled and there was a priest on one side of this um, black metal screen and I was on the other side. I couldn't really see him but I could hear him and he said, tell me your sins. And I regret to tell you that I lied to him. You know, when you're 10 years old, you're really not keeping track of every sin. And I knew I wasn't perfect. I knew I had done some things that were wrong, but in that moment, I couldn't remember any of them. So I just started making stuff up. I told him that I had lied. That part was true. I told him that I had disobeyed my parents and that I had been mean to my little brother. And as I recall, he told me to say a few our fathers, a pray a few Hail Marys on my rosary, and I would be absolved of my sins. Well, 
That was my first and last time in the confession booth because on the day that I was supposed to be confirmed, I went fishing. My mom was a little bit more religiously determined and she had me uh, enroll in a confirmation course and on December 11th, 1961, and I know the date because I still have the old school King James Bible they gave me, I was confirmed as a member of Trinity Episcopal Church. Again, a course taught by a priest, but a priest of a different order. Growing up, priests were a very respected part of my community. But over the years, there have been a series of high-profile scandals that have, uh, involving priests that have really damaged the reputation of the priest. Inappropriate actions on behalf of a few have harmed many and disillusioned others who trusted in them. These scandals have damaged not only the priesthood, but the church as well. And these scandals have caused many to wonder whether or not we even still need priests today. This morning, we're going to be looking at three things as we dissect our text. First, what is a priest? Second, who is a priest? And third, do we even need a priest? In the Bible, a priest is a man who intercedes on behalf of the people to God. Intercede comes from the Latin word meaning to go between. It's very closely related to the concept of mediating between two parties with a view towards reconciling differences. Intercede is also very closely related to the word intervene, which means to come between so as to prevent or alter an outcome or a result in a course of events. So a priest is one who intercedes, who intervenes on behalf of God for the benefit of the people. A priest serves as a bridge between God and the people. Today we think of a priest as one who intercedes for the benefit of the people to God with prayer and petitions. This last summer, we spent the entire summer going through the book of Exodus. And the Old Testament book of Exodus records that when God gave the covenant of Moses, when he established that covenant and gave him the Ten Commandments, he also established the priesthood. And at that time, God called and appointed Aaron, Moses' older brother, to serve as the Israel's first high priest. From then on, all priests were only male descendants of Aaron. And every high priest was chosen from among other members of the priesthood. Today, it might not seem unusual for a person to say, I feel called to the priesthood. Back then, you were either born into it or you weren't. And now as then, priests do what priests did. They interceded on behalf of God's people. But back then, priests didn't intercede any way they wanted the law of God, in particular Leviticus chapter 16, set forth the way the high priest was to intercede between God and man, and it was with prayers and petitions, and it was always with sacrifices. Once a year, the Lord set aside a day named Yom Kippur. In the Hebrew, the word Yom means day, 
and the word Kippur means atonement. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And this year, it was on September 16th. On that day and on that day only, the high priest entered a room set apart from the rest of the temple. And it was set apart by a thick curtain or veil. This room was known as the Holy of Holies. It was also known as the most holy place. But before the priest could enter this room, he had to do three things. First, he got two goats and he cast lots or dice over them. On the goat that the dice fell for the goat for God, that goat was a sin offering for God for the sins of the people. This goat was a symbolic substitute. The collective sins of all God's people were imputed onto this goat. <clears throat> and then the high priest ceremoniously slaughtered this goat on the altar to atone for or to cover the sins of God's people. As God said to his people in Leviticus chapter 17, for the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for your souls on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for your life, for your sins. As the author of Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was in this way that the high priest back then interceded and made reparations for the sins the people had committed during the past year. And then the next thing he did was he got the other goat. And it was called the scapegoat. And the high priest put both of his hands on the head of the scapegoat, symbolizing that the guilt of all the sins that people had committed during the past year was being laid upon this goat, and the sins of, people, of the people were symbolically imputed to this goat. And while both of his hands were on the head of this goat, the high priest would confess to God the sins that people had committed during the prior year, and then he would offer prayers and petitions to God on behalf of the people and for the nation. The scapegoat was then led out into the wilderness, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, symbolizing that God had mercifully forgiven and taken away and removed the people's sins at least for another year. And last, the priest sacrificed a bull for his own sins. And only after he had done all these things could he enter into the Holy of Holies, taking some blood with him from the goat that had been slain for the sins of the people and sprinkling it on the mercy seat of God where God's presence dwelt. And in, it was in this way that the high priest interceded before God on behalf of the people and God was pleased to mercifully forgive their sins and to take away and remove their sins at least for another year. Tradition tells us that entering the Holy of Holies was a terrifying experience for the high priest. Before he went in, the other priest would tie a rope around his foot so that 
if he went in and was struck dead in the presence of God, they could pull him out without having to go in after him. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a level of symbolism in these religious rituals that many modern people find very difficult to comprehend until we remember that we are not simply biologic beings. We are deeply, deeply symbolic creatures. Consider Ray Bolger. He died in 1987, but we still remember him. He played the scarecrow on The Wizard of Oz. One time, Bolger was asked, do you receive any financial remuneration or royalties for the syndicated reruns of the movie on TV? And Bolger said, no. I'll settle for immortality. That's enough for me. Francis Bevier said the same thing. Bevier played the role of Aunt B on the Andy Griffith show. She had inscribed on her tombstone to live in the hearts of those left behind is not to die. Dead 30 years, Aunt B lives on so long as the show remains in syndication. The Academy Award winner Woody Allen saw through the folly of this heart's longing for symbolic immortality and said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Symbolic illusion, symbolic immortality is an illusion, but it exposes the heart's insatiable longing for significance and worth. Where does this hunger come from? Solomon said that God has set eternity in every human heart. God has set eternal desires, eternal longings in our hearts, and yet many in our secular age seek to satisfy their heart's craving vertically. You know, a, a successful career is a really good thing, but when it becomes your ultimate source of meaning and worth and value, when it becomes the way that you validate yourself as a person, when it is what you lean on to assure yourself that you're a good and worthwhile person, when it becomes a source of your identity, you no longer have a career. You have an idol. You're trusting in your career or your money, your accomplishments, your children, your looks, your participation in some worthy cause, even your ministry, to give you what they simply do not have the power to give you. The longings of your immortal soul can never be truly satisfied by the temporal things of this world. Yes, we can get an emotional or psychological fix from the things of this world but it doesn't last. In the end, it never does. It always disappoints. And why is that? 
because infinite longings were never intended by God to be satisfied by finite things. Eternal desires were never intended and cannot satisfy, be satisfied by temporal things. The lasting meaning, worth, and acceptance our hearts crave can only be found vertically in a right relationship with the true and living God. It's the only relationship that's going to last as long as you will. The Old Testament religious system that we've been discussing had been in place for centuries at the time of Jesus' birth. Everyone was familiar with it. Everyone understood that the high priest would be a direct descendant of the sons of Aaron. So the last thing that anyone thought, the last thing that anyone could conceive of, was that there was another way because there was another priesthood. Not a priest in the order of Aaron, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is an ancient figure that lived six generations before Aaron. We are introduced to him in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, and there we read that Abraham had gone off to save his nephew named Lot, who had been taken captive by local warlords. Abraham and 318 fighting men went out to battle and rescued Lot and all his people and possessions. And when he returned from battle, Abraham is met by Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an obscure figure. His name is found in only three places in the entire Bible. We know little about him. We know, don't know who his father and mother were. We don't know where he was born. We don't know whether he was married or have children, or when or where or how he died. But one thing we do know, he was a priest. The scripture records that he was a priest of God Most High, and he must have been a very, very great priest. Because when Abraham returned from battle, Melchizedek blessed him. And that's really important in the Bible because in the scriptures, the lesser person is always blessed by the one who is greater. Do you see what that means for us today? We look at Abraham and we say, the patriarch, the father of the faith, the friend of God. How could anyone be greater than Abraham? In Melchizedek, we find one who is even greater than Abraham. And Abraham recognized this priest's greatness, and he revered him. How do we know that? Because the scripture says that Abraham gave him a tithe or a tenth of all the plunder that he had won in battle. We are introduced to this great high priest in Genesis 14, and the only other time his name is mentioned throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures is in Psalm 110. There, King David, speaking of the Messiah who would come, writes, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? A priest? Back then, everyone knew the prophecy that foretold the Messiah who would come would be a direct descendant of King David. Like David, Messiah would be a great king. He would fight for his people. He would win a great battle for his kingdom, for his people. So how did David predict that over a thousand years later, the Messiah would come as a priest, and not a priest in the order of Aaron, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, the short answer is he couldn't. David was a, a great king. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was still just a man. And as Yogi Berra once said, all men are great at making predictions, except about the future. In that day, no one, and I mean no one, thought that the Messiah or the Christ would be a priest, let alone a priest who was not descended from Aaron. So how did David correctly predict the Messiah would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? He didn't. He didn't. This was not a prediction. This was a prophecy. A future truth concerning God's plan of redemption revealed to David by God himself. And we know this for certain because centuries later, Jesus is in a conversation with the religious leaders of that day and he poses a question to them. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They promptly responded, as every good Jew would, the son of David, a descendant of David. Then Jesus says to them, speaking as a prophet, referring to Psalm 110, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus says, if David calls him Lord and Master, how can he then be David's son? Crickets. They had no answer. Volumes have been written unpacking that brief exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day, but we're going to focus in on one crucial and narrow point. Jesus was telling them, as he tells us today, that when David wrote Psalm 110, he was, in Jesus' words, speaking by the Spirit, that is, by the Holy Spirit of God. The apostle Peter put it this way, above all, you must understand that no scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul put it simply, all scripture is God-breathed. If there was ever a proof text for the view that scripture is written by man, but its content and message are inspired by God and without error, it's Psalm 110. If the author of Hebrews also writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had not connected the dots for us centuries later, we still to this day would not have the slightest idea what David was referring to when he said, the Messiah will come as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, 
So far, we've learned that a priest is a man who intercedes and intervenes before God on behalf of the people with prayer, petitions, and sacrifices. We've answered the question, who is a priest? And for the vast majority of biblical history, priests were only the descendants of Aaron and the office of prophet, priest, and king was never consolidated into one man. In the time that remains, I'd like to try to answer one of life's most relevant questions. Do I, do you, do we want a priest? Do we even need a priest? You know, most of us think that it's only in recent times that priests, flawed priests, have harmed people and led them astray, but read the Bible, this has always been true. In fact, in the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, it records that at that time, the sins of the priests were worse than the sins of the people. The priests had been commanded to offer only unblemished and spotless lambs as sacrifices, but instead, they accepted lame and diseased animals offered to God. Offerings that showed their utter contempt for God and his laws. You see, the flawed Aaronic priesthood was never intended to be the final priesthood. It always pointed beyond itself to a better priest and a final high priest. Concerning this high priest, Isaiah prophesied, saying, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Speaking in the spirit, Isaiah said, the sins of his people would be imputed onto this priest, saying, all we like sheep have turned away. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. And finally, Isaiah foretold that this priest would intervene for the benefit of the people, and he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Unlike the... Pardon me. Long before Isaiah spoke these words, King David foretold of a new and better priest, a new and better order of priesthood because it would be a priest and mediator of a new and better covenant, a covenant that did not require priests to endlessly offer barnyard animals year after year to atone for the past sins of the people. Instead, the priest of this new covenant would intercede by freely offering himself to atone for all the sins of all his people for all time. One time for all time, it is finished. And unlike the descendants of Aaron, this great high priest did not need to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he was without sin. The perfect priest who offered a perfect sacrifice, his sinlessness has become our salvation. The book of Genesis records that when Abraham returned from battle, Melchizedek served him bread and wine, pointing to the day 
when a greater priest would serve bread and wine to his people. Do you remember? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood, the new covenant, which is poured out for the sins of many. Drink ye all of it. At the cross, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Justice was satisfied when God's judgment of our sin fell not upon us, but upon Jesus in our stead. Our sin was placed upon him, and his spotless, unblemished righteousness would be placed on all who would come to him by faith. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as the author of Hebrews says later in the book, we now have a resurrected and ascended high priest who even now sits at the right hand of God the Father, a priest who is able to save completely all who come to the Father through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, I can't speak for you, but I know that I want and I need this high priest, not just on my last day, but every day. A priest, as the scripture says, who can sympathize with my weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that I am, but is without sin. A great high priest who enables me to draw near to the throne of grace, not in fear, but boldly and with confidence so that I might receive mercy and find grace to help me in my times of need. Jesus is the great and final high priest the scriptures foretold would come. He is the priest to end all priests and the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. But he's also a king like Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, we learn Melchizedek was the king of Salem. In Hebrew, Melchizedek's name means king of peace and king of righteousness, pointing to a kingdom where there is fullness and flourishing and well-being in every sphere of life a kingdom where all the judgments of the king are true and right and just, a kingdom where there is no injustice, no oppression, no exploitation, and no corruption. In short, a kingdom unlike any on planet Earth, and yet a kingdom that every human heart longs for. Do you remember what Jesus said at his trial to his accusers, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. We know that his kingdom, we know this because in his kingdom is so far better because in the kingdoms of this world, people die to save the king. At the cross we learned that Jesus is the only king who died to save his people. The book of Revelation says that with his blood, the Lamb of God purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You know what that means? That if you are a follower of Christ today, you 
you are his treasured possession, whether you feel like it or not. And when is the last time you stopped to think or consider your great value and worth to him? You see, it's only in relationship to this royal priest that we can discover our true identity and find enduring worth and significance and meaning that our hearts have always hungered for. So this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been appointed, you have been called to be part of a royal priesthood and a kingdom of priests, called to serve and honor God in every sphere of your life, from how you spend and give your money to the what you watch on the internet and how you do your job and the way you interact with people inside the family of God and outside. And through prayer and petition, through deeds of mercy, service, and hospitality, we are called on behalf of those in the family of God and for those who for now appear to be on the outside to intercede for them. Before I entered the confession booth that day, I had not been keeping a record of my sins, but there's a priest who knew every one of them. Before I entered, or at the time that I entered that confession booth that day, that priest didn't know that I had lied to him, but there is a priest who did. Our sin creates a record and a debt. And we cannot have a right relationship with God until that record has been completely expunged, which occurs only when that debt has been fully satisfied. Jesus, the Son of God and friend of sinners, he came to pay a debt he didn't owe for those of us who owed a debt we couldn't pay. And so this morning, if you're still on the fence about following Jesus. If you have a gnawing suspicion that you might be a sinner in need of a great high priest who would love to intercede on your behalf to the Father, today may be the day you come. As Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will never cast out. Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness. So today, if you've sensed God might be speaking to you, or if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, please see me and Mike after the service or grab one of the elders, and we would love, love to talk to you. So let me close us in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, uh, so much to take in, but we do come, for you alone have the words of life. We come to you from the confession booth of our hearts, hearing the echo of your intercession for us those many years ago. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, we are grateful that you interceded, that you intervened for your people, and even now do so on our behalf. We're grateful for your mercy which makes us merciful. We're grateful for your love, which makes us more loving. We're grateful for your kindness towards us, which helps us to be more kind. We pray that we would be suitable royal priests, worthy of our calling, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.